The last time I spoke here, we talked about apostasy from 1 John 2.19, where the apostle says that when someone abandons the faith and turns back from following Christ, that proves that person was never a true believer to begin with. And in the message that I gave before that, which I think was like two weeks before that, we talked about Christ's call to discipleship and His dealings, you remember, with three would-be disciples in Luke 9. And one of the verses that I quoted was Luke 9.62, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. That is a potent verse. And uh, that passage brought to mind, I think I even mentioned at the time, an Old Testament incident that we looked at here almost a decade ago, and I want to go back and look at it again. This is the account of Lot's wife and the judgment that came to her because she looked back when she shouldn't have. Jesus mentions Lot's wife in Luke 17, so let's start there. We'll get back to Genesis, but turn to Luke 17, verse 32 is the text that mentions her. We won't stay there long, but I want you to see it. This is one of the shortest verses in the English Bible, Luke 17, 32, three words, remember Lot's wife. So this morning we're going to remember Lot's wife and try to learn some important spiritual lessons from someone who is decidedly a negative role model. And there are some significant contrasts between Lot and his wife. Lot was a righteous man, Scripture tells us. You wouldn't necessarily know that from the Old Testament, but the New Testament tells us he was a righteous man, and God delivered him from the brink of destruction. Mrs. Lot was an ungodly woman who was destroyed by divine judgment in a moment when the way of salvation lay open before her. And the lesson of Lot's life, the lesson of his life, given in 2 Peter 2.9 is this, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. But 2 Peter 2.9 goes on to say that the Lord also knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and that is one of the key lessons we learn from Mrs. Lot, among others. James 4 verse 4 says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, friendship with the world is a sure route to apostasy. We've been talking about apostasy. One of the surest ways to determine whether someone is headed for apostasy or not is to ask, what does he love? Is it the world or is it Christ? Because you can't love both, Scripture says. Love of the world is the tell for someone who has no true love for Christ. And one of the reasons I believe the church in our generation is full of unconverted people and pulpits are full of unregenerate pastors is because worldliness is so prevalent in the church, love of the world. In fact, the defining mark of 21st century evangelicalism is a craving for the approval of the world. It's a dark and dangerous tendency, and and we're seeing the fruit of it. I think we're just beginning to see the fruit of it in the deluge of recent high-profile cases of apostasy, people turning away from Christ, announcing that they're no longer Christians. And Lot's wife is a classic picture of someone who, having fallen in love with the world, 
found herself unable and unwilling to let go, even when she knew it meant instant and utter destruction. And she suffered the full brunt of divine judgment along with the rest of God's enemies in Sodom. And the lesson Jesus drew from Mrs. Lot is a corollary, and in a way it's a summary of all the other lessons we can learn from her demise. Here's how Jesus said it. Look again at Luke 17. Verse 32 is where Jesus says, remember Lot's wife, and He adds this in verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. By the way, Lot's wife is mentioned explicitly by name only two times in all of Scripture. One is Genesis 19.26, and then she's mentioned again here in Luke 17. So before we turn back to Genesis to look at the larger narrative here, let's look briefly at the context of this very short verse in Luke. Luke 17, Jesus is prophesying here His own return. And in verses 26 and 27, He makes this familiar statement about the character of the days that will immediately precede His return. He says, verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, what does this mean? I think people tend to misinterpret this. What this suggests is simply that Christ's coming will occur at a time when it is totally unexpected. People aren't ready for it. The people who were alive when the flood came had no clue and no concern for what was about to happen, even though Noah had been preaching about it to them for years. They were still eating and drinking and marrying and giving their sons and daughters in marriage. And notice that list of things. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of them. We do all of those things. Those are everyday activities, they, and they fulfill the fundamental needs for humanity's survival. It is not wrong to be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. Even though those were wickedly sinful people, Jesus' point has nothing to do with their wickedness. He's stressing the ordinariness of what they were doing. But nevertheless, that's all their lives were focused on. The problem was not that they engaged in those activities, but that they were foolishly thinking only about the here and now. So they were utterly caught unprepared by the destruction that befell them. And Jesus continues, verse 28, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed." Now notice what he's saying. The people of Sodom were caught totally off guard by divine judgment. When judgment fell, they had no warning. There was no time for them to flee. They were caught standing flat-footed so that when the judgment of God struck their city, they were instantly destroyed without any warning. But not Lot's family. If you know the story, you will remember that some angels had visited Lot's household and and told them to flee the doom that was about to fall. So Lot's family had plenty of warning. The angel told Lot, Genesis 19, 12, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people 
has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And so the whole family had more than ample time to escape, but then Lot and his family were delayed because Lot stopped to try to bargain with the angels. He didn't want to flee to the mountains like they instructed him. He was willing to go to another city. I think he had grown so accustomed to the ease of city life that he wasn't prepared to go back to the life of a vagabond, like when he was living with Abraham, living in tents and constantly moving. And so here in Luke 17, Jesus reminds His hearers of the urgency of fleeing without delay from the wrath that is to come. Verse 31, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away, and likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back, remember Lot's wife. You know, he's like the airline attendant who gives you the little speech before you take off and tells you that if this if there's an emergency, don't grab your laptop, right? I always plan to grab mine anyway because I can't afford to lose it. (laughs) But Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't think that way. Remember Lot's wife. That's a command from Christ Himself because, and this is the lesson He wants us to get, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And that rule, by the way, applies not only to moments of crisis and impending judgment, that applies to all of life. If you would preserve your soul from eternal destruction, let go of this world and cling to the Savior. That's the essence of the gospel message. Now, once more, Luke 17.32 is the only verse other than Genesis 19.26 where Lot's wife is specifically mentioned two verses in all of Scripture that that speak of her, and I find that amazing. In the Old Testament, she's really mentioned only once in passing where her destruction is recorded, and yet here in the New Testament, Jesus points to her as an example we should heed and not forget about her. So it behooves us to give her a closer look. What lessons can we possibly draw from the example of someone who's mentioned in all the Bible only twice and only once in a narrative passage that gives us any details about her. And the truth is, there are many lessons that can be drawn from her life, and I've grouped some of them under three heads, and I'm going to make an outline of those three headings to help us sort out the lessons that we can learn from the fall and destruction of Mrs. Lot. And as we remember Lot's wife this morning, Here are three things to remember about her. Number one, remember the lesson of a wayward life. Number two, remember the lesson of a wayward love. And number three, remember the lesson of a wayward look. We'll make that our outline. We'll take them in order. And we'll now leave the Gospel of Luke and more or less breeze through some passages in Genesis. We're going to start in Genesis 12, so you can turn there. This is where we first meet Lot. Genesis 12. And here's point one in your outline, lesson number one from the demise of Lot's wife. Remember the lesson of a wayward life. Lot's wife is something of an enigma in Scripture. Her actual name is never mentioned. We don't know when Lot married her or where she came from, but it is almost certain that she was from a pagan background, very likely even a native sodomite. 
So how do we know that? Well, first of all, Lot was clearly unmarried when he left the land of his ancestors with his uncle Abram. Genesis 12.5 says, "'And Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan.'" Notice that doesn't mention Lot's wife. And then later, when, when Abraham was leaving Egypt, Scripture records this, one chapter later, Genesis 13, verse 1, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. Again, nothing about a wife for Lot. He was more or less like a, an adopted son to his aunt and uncle. He's part of their household rather than the head of his own household. And then Genesis 13, verse 5 says, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So he did have his own possessions, but nothing again about his wife. Again, it makes no mention of her. So it was almost certainly after this that Lot married her. There's a Jewish tradition that says Lot married her shortly after he moved to Sodom, and that seems likely because when Sodom was destroyed, she and Lot had daughters who were engaged. They were just old enough to marry. And Lot seems to have lived there for somewhere around 15 to 20 years. Furthermore, in Genesis 14, when Abram brought Lot back from those kings who had taken him hostage, Scripture says he brought back all the goods and also brought back again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also, and the people, Genesis 14, verse 6. So Mrs. Lot was probably included when Scripture says, the women also, but she's not specifically named or referred to as Lot's wife. And even that is significant because Scripture never slights godly women. You see this throughout the book of Genesis. Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, they are all major characters alongside their husbands. So the fact that Lot's wife isn't mentioned except for her destruction gives us a clue as to the character of her life. God Himself did not regard her as worthy of mention except in the account of how she was judged. And in the end, her life is a void as far as the biblical record is concerned. All we know about her is how she died. We're told nothing specific about her life, and that surely is a significant silence. It suggests that whatever spiritual advantages she enjoyed as the wife of a righteous man and as an in-law of Abram's, she squandered all of those privileges. And in the end, we know from the way she died that she was not a righteous woman. She suffered judgment at the hands of God with her own people rather than sharing in the merciful deliverance that God had provided for her and her family's sake. Her wayward life is a classic picture of the very reason God forbids His elect ones to marry heathen spouses. You remember that when Abram wanted a wife for Isaac, he, he sent a servant back to the land of his own people so that Isaac wouldn't have to marry into a pagan family. According to Genesis 24, 37, Abraham told his servant, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. And Isaac later did this very same thing for Jacob and so on. 
And all of this was designed not, not out of ethnic animosity or any of that, but to keep the, the people of God as free as possible from any corrupting heathen influences. It was spiritual purity that they were after, not racial purity. And nevertheless, Lot's wife enjoyed many spiritual advantages just by virtue of her marriage. 2 Peter 2.8 clearly states that Lot was a righteous man. I'm glad for that verse because, like I said, you wouldn't necessarily know this from reading the Old Testament, but he was a righteous man. And whatever blessings of God rested on Lot, she was a beneficiary. When Lot was rescued by Abraham from those marauding kings in in, uh, Genesis 14, Mrs. Lot was delivered as well. When Lot entertained angels from the presence of God, she was the hostess. When angels confounded the men of Sodom in order to rescue Lot when they were trying to beat down his door to get in and do violence, Mrs. Lot and the rest of the household were also kept safe from that mob. And when the angels escorted Lot out of the doomed city, they brought her too. She had heard Lot pray. She surely had learned something from her husband about Jehovah. She'd been a partaker with Lot of many spiritual privileges. For example, she would have known all about how God called Abraham out of the land of Haran. She was now a member of Abraham's family herself. And to some degree, she enjoyed all of the blessings associated with Abraham's, the the covenant God had made with Abraham. She enjoyed the bounty of God's provision for Lot. Remember that she was a, a very, or he was a very wealthy man, Lot was. She was blessed by God to be married to a righteous man, and more than anyone else in Sodom except for Lot himself, she had enjoyed the blessings of divine grace. And I believe this is the very thing Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 7.14 when he said, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. That doesn't mean that you're automatically saved if you're married to a believer. It means that the marriage union itself is blessed by God, even if only one partner is a believer. In Paul's words, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And again, that does not mean that God condones marriages between believers and unbelievers. And in fact, 2 Corinthians 6.14 expressly forbids believers to enter into an unequal yoke like that. But sometimes among a couple who are both unsaved. One of them comes to Christ and the other doesn't. So it's not unusual to have one spouse a believer and the other an unbeliever, and Scripture says the marriage itself is deemed holy by God. So so don't miss this point. When Paul says that the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, he doesn't mean that the pagan automatically obtains salvation through the faith of a devout spouse, but he does mean that the marriage bond itself is sanctified, holy, deemed sacred by God, and therefore the unbelieving spouse and the children as well enjoy certain blessings from the hand of God that normally would be withheld from an unbeliever. And Mrs. Lot had benefited from all of those blessings but she squandered that advantage. She scorned the mercy of God. She wasted the day of opportunity, and ultimately she perished with the enemies of God rather than enjoy the deliverance of God with her husband. Her whole life, despite 
all the wonderful spiritual advantages she received, her whole life was a, a complete waste. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus says. And when we think of her today, we envision her as, at least I do, as a pillar of salt, you know, probably a mound of volcanic spew somewhere near the bottom of the Dead Sea that has eroded with time. When I visited the, the Dead Sea with Darlene a few years ago, I declined the opportunity to swim in it. It's apparently a fun place to swim, although the water makes, makes your flesh burn, but you can really float easily in it. People were having all kinds of fun. I decided not to swim in it because all I could think of was that some of that salt is quite possibly the melted remains of Lot's wife. <laughs> so let her be a reminder to us of the dangers of a wayward life. Here's a second lesson. Remember the lesson of a wayward love. Remember the lesson of a wayward love. One of the stark contrasts between Lot and Abraham is the fact that Lot settled in a city, but Abraham remained a sojourner for his entire life. What's significant about that is God had promised Abraham a land of his own and a city that had foundations made by God, but Abraham never ceased to be a vagabond. He held on to God's promise by faith, but he never saw the complete fulfillment of it with his own eyes. Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10 tells us, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He wanted that city, the, the city of God, rather than a city like Sodom. God had called Abraham to this kind of life, and Abraham was specifically called out by God and separated. His calling meant he had, to, he had to live totally apart from the pagan Canaanites rather than blending into their culture and their lifestyle and their worldview and all of that. He likewise had to segregate himself from the more sophisticated Egyptians with all of their wealth and their knowledge. And above all, he had to keep his distance from the values and the social customs of the utterly degenerate Sodomites. But Abraham was called not only to be separate from those pagan cultures, he had also been separated from his own ancestors. He had no permanent place to call his own. His entire life was lived in a tent, dwelling alone with God. That left Abraham completely dependent on God. And, uh, and there were no fortifications around his dwelling place other than the invisible protection of God. There were none of the comforts of city life, none of the fellowship, none of the resources, none of the culture and the convenience, nothing but a life of faith. But Abraham knew that a frail tent under God's watchful eye is infinitely safer than the walls of Sodom under God's disapproving eye. Lot had begun his career as a tent dweller as well. But after he parted from his uncle, Genesis 13, 12 says, he pitched his tent towards Sodom. And so he's moving that direction and finally moved into the city and became comfortable there. At least comfortable, though his righteous soul was vexed, he lived there. He became, he became a man of some importance in that city, although in the end, he had absolutely no influence for good there. 
often think of this when Christians tell me they want to they want to stay in some corrupt denomination or they want to be involved in some ungodly hobby or whatever because they think they'll have a good influence on the pagans. It never works that way. It doesn't work that way. Our task is not to be a good influence on people, but to proclaim the gospel and try to rescue people from the life of sin. Lot moved into the city, although he never really felt at home there. Peter tells us that day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Lot's very soul was vexed, it says, every day of his life by the wickedness of that evil city's rampant perversions. No matter how settled he became in Sodom, his heart was never at home there. He never came to love the debauchery and the evil influences that characterized that place. In that sense, he was a righteous man. But Mrs. Lot was different. She was attached to Sodom. If that city wasn't her home when Lot married her, it became her home in every sense. She grew to love the place. No matter how evil it was, she didn't want to leave. She probably loved being the wife of a prominent and wealthy person in that city, and there's no suggestion ever that her soul was vexed by the wickedness there. In fact, it's pretty clear it wasn't. 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That was precisely the thing that caused Mrs. Lot's downfall. She loved Sodom. Why did she love that evil place so much? Because the love of the Father was not in her. Her values were worldly values. The things she loved were worldly things. She was a friend of the world, and therefore she was an enemy of God. And when faced with the necessity of fleeing a world that was perishing, with the way of divine deliverance open right in front of her, she couldn't tear herself away from what she really loved. In front of her lay safety. In front of her were her own husband and children. In front of her was a new life of freedom from the perversions of Sodom, new life under the hand of God's protection. But with all of that in front of her, Mrs. Lot could not resist the urge to turn back. Behind her was divine judgment. Behind her lay nothing but danger and certain doom. Behind her, the entire wicked city of Sodom was already in ruins, and those ruins were still being bombarded from heaven with fireballs of divine wrath, but sadly, that mass of worthless corruption represented everything she loved the most. Here's the danger of such a wayward love. 1 John 2 goes on to say, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Lot's wife was destroyed along with the lusts of this world because she couldn't let go of those lusts. Instead of setting her affections on things above, she had fixed her heart on the things of this earth, even devilish things that were doomed to a fiery destruction, and she perished right along with everything she truly loved. You can think about it like this. You will spend eternity with whatever you truly love the most. If your heart is fixed on the things of the Lord, if you love righteousness, 
If you find your sweetest joy in fellowship with Him, that's where you're going to be throughout eternity. But if your affections are set on the things of this world, if what really delights you the most is things that are passing away, if your life is characterized by the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life, then just like Lot's wife, you will perish in the destruction of everything that you truly love. That is the lesson of a wayward love. That's why Jesus urges us to remember Lot's wife. Now look at the third point. Remember the lesson of a wayward look. And let's carefully examine this verse that describes the demise of Mrs. Lot. Her ultimate undoing was because of a simple look over her shoulder, a glance in the wrong direction. She looked the the wrong way and it killed her. Genesis 19, verses 24 and 25, describe the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and He overthrew those cities, and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground." Now let's talk about the nature of this judgment for a moment. Sulfur, I'm reading from the ESV. That can refer to a solid rock-like form of sulfur mixed with gypsum or or in a geologic catastrophe like this. Sulfur often streams forth at high speeds in the form of superheated, highly flammable gas. And if you're reading the King James Version or the NASB, the word you, you see there is brimstone, just another word for sulfur. It has a unique and easily recognizable smell. It's the smell of rotten eggs. If you've ever visited an area active with geysers and volcanic activity, you undoubtedly know that smell. In Scripture, brimstone is repeatedly associated with the judgment of God. Deuteronomy 29, verses 22 and 23, for example, the Lord warns Israel that if they despise His covenant with them, He will judge the land. And here's what it says, and the next generation your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say when they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, which the Lord overthrew in His anger and wrath. And in the book of Revelation, brimstone is often seen as an expression of divine wrath. Even hell is pictured as a lake of fire that burns with brimstone. In fact, I found 15 instances of the word sulfur or brimstone in Scripture, and all of them have some connection with the catastrophic judgment of God. It's the biblical symbol for God's fiery judgment. In fact, if you you visit the Dead Sea today, the first thing you're going to notice after the intense heat is the brimstone. That whole area of the Dead Sea emits a a very powerful sulfur smell. Even today, you can't miss it. And and to this day, that region at the southern end of the Dead Sea is still an active geothermal area. In fact, from what we know of the region, it's possible that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was triggered by a natural catastrophe under the direction of divine providence. Geologists say it's possible that a a subterranean deposit of sulfur and other flammable gases 
ignited and exploded, and it just rained rocks and fire all over that region. There are also tar pits all over that area, some of which would have ignited and burned with intense heat, possibly causing explosion after explosion. Whatever the case, that entire region, which was once a lush resort, now it's utterly laid waste. And there is clear geological evidence of a catastrophe like this. And to this day, you can see it wherever you look. As you drive through that region, you see jagged rocks scattered everywhere for miles as if they fell from heaven. And everything there suggests the aftermath of some massive disaster like a volcanic eruption or a subterranean geothermal explosion. It's one of the most unusual and eerie places on earth. It's perpetually hot. It's steeped in the odor of brimstone. There's just no no other place quite like it. Fire and brimstone were already raining from heaven as soon as Lot and his family left Sodom. It was following right behind them. You'll recall that Lot, if you know this story, Lot had hung back as long as possible. He's hardly a noble spiritual man, even though Scripture tells us he was a righteous man. Like I said, you wouldn't know it necessarily from reading the Old Testament. He, he tried to barter his way into another nearby city, even though all the cities in that region were destroyed in this disaster. He hung back, he delayed. Finally, the angelic messengers literally dragged him and his family physically out of the city and got them moving. But his wife continued to long for Sodom. Look at Genesis 19.26. This is the key verse. But Lot's wife behind him, he's delaying, she's hanging back even further. Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Again, it's significant that she's lagging behind. When Lot began to flee, she continued to linger. She slackened her pace, she fell fell behind him, which surely says something about the state of her heart at this point. Just imagine the chaos of this scene. It's obvious that Lot and his family are in grave danger. Fire is falling all behind them. The angels had taken them by the hand, dragged them together outside the city. Lot and his wife would have been side by side at that point when they reached the city limits. And suddenly it begins to dawn on Lot that this is really serious and he is fleeing for his life. Again, we know he's a righteous man. You can safely assume that he didn't just, you know, shout every man for himself and take, run, take off running, leaving his wife behind. He was probably doing everything in his power to spur the family to run faster, pick up the pace, stay together, not fall behind. And the fact that Mrs. Lot was behind him suggests that she purposely pulled away from Lot and drew back deliberately as a sort of stubborn protest against the judgment of God on this city that she was so much in love with. Her heart was still in Sodom, and she's lingering because of her love for that place. The motive of her heart is made clear by the fact that she turned and looked back. Even though she had been clearly instructed not to do that, Hebrews 10.38 says, And this is God speaking, my righteous one shall live by faith, and if anyone shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Lot was a just man living by faith, badly, but he was doing it. His wife was one of those who shrinks back. 
And God says He has no pleasure in people like that. Again, the angels had specifically warned Lot and his family not to look back. Look at verse 17. And as they brought them out, one angel said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. Lot's wife was guilty of unbelief at the one crucial moment when she had to walk by faith. She had every reason to believe the word of these angels. She had entertained them in her home. She had seen them turn away an angry mob of of sexual perverts who threatened her husband by by miraculously these angels had stricken the, the mob with blindness. She had heard the angels' urgent words of warning. She had even benefited from their mercy when they physically carried her out of the most immediate circle of danger. She had plenty of evidence that God was speaking through these angels, and she had no reason whatsoever to doubt what they had told her. But now with the way of deliverance open right in front of her, she did doubt, and she couldn't keep herself from looking back. She slowed her pace, she turned her head, and in that instant, judgment caught up with her. Scripture says she became a pillar of salt. That may mean that she was coated with some semi-molten, you know, brimstone and gypsum and therefore frozen in place for all of eternity. Or it may be that in a supernatural act of judgment, God instantly just turned her into a block of salt. Charles Spurgeon said this, she looked, but why did she look? He says, I suppose it was this, her heart was that way. She loved Sodom and the separated life she abhorred. She felt she would rather mix with the reprobate multitude than with the chosen few. She was not of the spirit that could walk with God alone. She clung to society and to sin, and though she was running for her life, she thought of her household stuff and of the ease of Sodom, and she looked back with a lingering eye because she wanted to be there. And it came to this, that as her eye went back, her whole body would have gone back if time had allowed, and that one glance betrayed which way her soul was going. Don't underestimate the seriousness of a wayward look. A sinful, lustful glance is no trivial thing. I already read 1 John 2.15, love not the world. Remember what verse 16 says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, not from the Father, but is from the world. It's interesting that the lust of the eyes gets top billing in the deadliest influences that this world has to offer. There's nothing trivial about a wayward look, especially when it's a lust-filled look, a glance that longs for some wickedness. Jesus said that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's Matthew 5, 28. And He went on to say in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So don't minimize the sinfulness of a wayward look. A sin with the eyes has been the undoing of many. The lust of the eyes will suck you in and destroy you. Peter warned, 2 Peter 2.14, about men who have eyes full of adultery and cannot cease from sin. It's especially pertinent in these days when there's so much pornography available on the internet. 
Peter warned, 2 Peter 2.14, about men who have eyes full of adultery. And remember David's sin with Bathsheba. That whole sordid episode began with a wayward look. According to Genesis 3.6, Eve was lured into sin when the woman saw that the tree looked good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Achan confessed that his sin was conceived when he saw among the spoils of Ai a Babylonish garment and some money, and his gaze turned to greed, and the greed was his undoing. We live in an age when sin assaults us constantly through the windows of our eyes. These days you can dial up the internet and download the filthiest imaginable images onto your computer screen, and that sort of pornography is a multi-billion dollar business. It is the biggest money-making enterprise on the internet. You no longer have to go to a seedy bookshop in a bad part of town to buy pornography. You can get as much as you like in the privacy of your own home. And you may think no one will ever know, but the Scripture says you can be sure your sin will find you out. Worst of all, that lustful look will destroy your soul. But you don't even have to go that far to be guilty of sinning with your eyes. We are bombarded daily with images on our television screens whose only purpose is to appeal to our lusts, to stir up sinful covetousness. And even if you get rid of your television, you can't drive through the city without your eyes being assaulted by billboards designed for the same purpose. We are in spiritual warfare. We live on the brink of Sodom. And if you do not guard your eyes, if you don't recognize that the things that are made to look the most appealing in a culture like ours, these are evil temptations that can defile your heart and your mind. And if you make your heart at home in Sodom, set your eyes and your affections on the things of this world, you will be ultimately destroyed. That's what Jesus means when He says, remember Lot's wife. Job said in Job 31 verse 1 that He made a covenant with His eyes. He would not employ His eyes for any lustful or sinful purpose. That is what you have to do if you're going to protect yourself from the disastrous consequences of a wayward look. I mentioned that Lot's wife was destroyed as she stood on the very doorstep of deliverance. God laid out before her a way of escape. She had received clear instructions and plenty of angelic encouragement to persevere in the way God had directed her. And notice that verse 23 says, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Zoar was the place where God had conceded to let Lot live when Lot said he was fearful to flee to the mountains. A new day was already beginning to break. Lot had reached the place of safety. His wife, lagging behind, must have been very near the gates of Zoar when her doom caught up with her. You just think about that. What a, what a tragedy. What an awful thing to be so close to salvation and yet fall short of it. To know the way of salvation and to pursue it so far and yet draw back at the decisive moment. That must be an excruciating agony to bear in an eternity of torment. She was on the brink of mercy when she turned into the arms of justice. She was on the very threshold of safety 
when she drew back into eternal wrath. And it would be wrong of me to close this morning without challenging you to use this text as an opportunity for self-examination. Jesus commanded us to remember Lot's wife. Paul said these things are written for our examples on whom the ends of the ages have come. So consider how all of this applies to you personally. Lot's wife proves that you can enjoy many of the privileges and the benefits of divine grace without ever actually becoming a partaker in Christ. That's the thing the entire book of Hebrews is written to warn against. You can travel a long way down the road of salvation towards salvation without ever really genuinely knowing what it is to believe. You can be married to a righteous man or woman and yet be so in love with the things of this world that you ultimately forfeit all of the, forfeit all of the blessedness you ever knew. You can live your life in the presence of God's people and still perish with the world. You can be at the very doorway of Zoar and yet be destroyed along with the people of Sodom. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, Paul writes, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? The King James Version says, Jesus Christ is in you unless you are reprobates. How do we know whether we're reprobates? The one way is to examine your own heart. Where are your affections set? On the things of this world or on things above? Are you looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, or are your eyes gazing elsewhere? Are you living the life of a sojourner who is under the Lord's care, or have you sought security in the artificial safety of Sodom? Have you put your hand relentlessly to the plow, or are you constantly looking back? A single momentary look is what spelled the demise of Mrs. Lot. She was destroyed instantly without any further warning, with no opportunity for repentance. The instant she turned her head was the same instant she was destroyed. And there she stands, a pillar of salt, a monument to squandered opportunity and the severity of divine judgment. She is a lesson for us all. Let's pray. Lord, we do remember Lot's wife, and we pray that in Your mercy no one in this room would ever suffer a similar fate. So cut out hearts of stone, hearts that are cold to You, and give us instead hearts that are aflame with love for what You love. We live in a place which in many ways is worse than Sodom. Help us to reach the multitudes around us with the truth of Your gospel. May we pull people out of the fire and point them to the way of safety and salvation that You have spread open before us in Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.